The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. When I was a uh, senior in college, it was about this time of year, and at this point, Rebecca and I were, were already engaged. We had been dating for about two and a half years. We ended up getting married after we graduated, that summer after we graduated out of college. So Rebecca and I were um, engaged, and Rebecca lived off campus in a, a house with a bunch of her girlfriends. So um, it was a, a house full of, uh, of those girls. And then I lived on campus in a dorm, and uh, Rebecca told me that they were going to be having a Halloween party and um, the, that, that weekend. And so I was like, okay, great. I'll, you know, of course I'll be there. I want to, you know, support the, the party. And so um, I began preparing for that party. Now, a party like that is a very specific way you prepare, you, you have a costume, you know? So I'm like, okay, I've got to find a costume, but you know, I, I'm going to be there. And one of the, the people hosting this is my fiance. So it's got to be a good one. Like I've got to come up with a good costume. I want to impress Rebecca. And so I'm thinking like, what could I be? And I'm thinking, you know, what are some options? Like what would be impressive? Like I could be Zorro or something like that. And I'm like, I don't think I can pull off Zorro. I don't think, what about Indiana Jones? I'm like, no, I'm just, I don't think that that would fly. I don't think I can quite pull that off either. And so I was thinking, I was thinking about Rebecca and Rebecca, when it comes to desserts, like like her favorite dessert are cookies. Like she loves cookies. I like cake. Some people like ice cream, um, but she, she likes cookies. And there's this one place on campus that made the best homemade cookies. It was called the grill and they made these warm cookies um, and they would wrap them in tin foil. And so when you got them from the grill, they were amazing. And I'm like, Rebecca loves grill cookies. I will dress up as a grill cookie. Like this is perfect. So I got like a big piece of cardboard and I cut like a big circle, okay, like this. And then I got another one like that I would put on my back and then part in the middle so it was looked like a big cookie. And then I had like a place I could put my head through, my feet through, and then my arms through. And then I colored these big chocolate chips on the front and then I wrapped the, bo- the whole bottom, like with a whole roll of, of tinfoil, like the bottom part is all wrapped in tinfoil like I'm a cookie coming out of that. And so I had to like put it like in the back seat as like I'm driving into the house and then I get out of the car and I like, I shimmy the cookie over me. And so I'm like this, I can't bend my arms. I can barely bend my legs. I have to like walk sideways over. Okay, like I open the door. Okay, I go sideways through the door and I go right in the middle of the living room surrounded by like, you know, it was a, it was a well-attended party, like maybe 60, 70 people. And they're all looking at me. I made like quite an entrance. And as I'm sitting there and I kind of like do like a 360 around, That's when I realized I'm the only one in a costume. (laughs) Apparently other people don't know how you prepare for a party like this. Unfortunately, that's the exact moment Rebecca walks in. She's getting home from her practicum and she walks in red faced as she sees me as a giant cookie and everyone pointing and laughing at me. So I made an impression. It was not the impression I was going through, going for. Rebecca still married me because she's a gracious woman. Okay, um, but I had prepared one way and other people had, I guess, prepared differently. Uh, was, I didn't, didn't get that. I tell, uh, I tell you that story because we're talking about the end times. We're talking about how does the Bible say everything ends? One of the most important things that the Bible talks about when it's coming, uh, when it's coming to the discussion of the end times is how do you prepare for the end times? 
The Bible has a, has a lot to say about what's going to happen, and there's a lot of discussion and debate about what's going to happen, but uh, maybe even more important, and maybe even more is said about how do we prepare for what is going to happen. And so we're going to look at a text that talks about that, because here's the honest truth of what this says. How we are called to prepare for that will mean that we live certain ways that maybe not many other people around us live. So I want you to see what this says. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 25. So grab your Bible. If you have a Bible app, uh, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 14. Let's look at what this says. Let's pick it up in, in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now let's just pause right there for a second. It says, for it will be like, what is he talking about? What will be like what? Like what is it? What is this saying it will be like? Okay, this is the context always in the Bible is very important. If you lift a single verse out of the Bible, ignoring the context, you could make the Bible say almost anything you want if you do that. The context is if you really truly want to know what God is saying out of the Bible, you have to understand the context. If you'll notice in most of your Bibles and Bible apps, the, the surrounding text is all in red. That is a way that uh, designates that they're Jesus' words. Every word in the Bible is authoritatively from God. This is, doesn't mean that the red words are more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. It's all authoritative. The red words, that's just a way that we honor the Savior by just designating those things that he spoke. Um, but this is in the middle of something Jesus is speaking about, and the context is very important. This is in the middle of Holy Week. So here's what's already transpired. Sunday, Jesus has come down from Bethany over the Mount of Olives. He has entered into Jerusalem. They all receive him almost like he's a conquering war hero. They shout, Hosanna. They put down palm branches. They take off their cloaks. They spread them before him. It's called the triumphal entry. That same crowd, by the end of the week, will be asking for uh, Pilate to allow him to be crucified. He's already entered in on Sunday morning. He has uh, already entered into the temple at this point. By the time we're reading these words, already entered into the temple. It's what's called the cleansing of the temple. He comes into the temple, chases the money changers out, and with a lot of passion declares, this is called, my, my father's house is called to be a house of prayer. That's already taken place. He's already had like a lot of back and forth with the Pharisees. They keep trying to trap him and they keep trying to, to, to ask him questions that they think are going to ensnare him. So they ask, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he asks for a coin and he says, whose likeness is on the coin? And they say, well, Caesar. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. They've already said, oh, I got it. I got it, Jesus. What's the most important commandment? He says, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He quotes it right out of Deuteronomy 6. And he says, but I'll, go, I'll, I'll uh, do you one better. Here's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
He's already had those conversations. He's already uh, poured out what's called the woes over. He warns the Pharisees and calls them out exactly for who they are as, as whitewashed tombs. There's already been all this back and forth. He's already wept over Jerusalem. He's already looked at Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem, would I, I pr- wish and pray that you would turn back to Jesus. And turn back to the Father. And as Jesus walks out of Jerusalem, walks out of the temple, he's walking towards the Mount of Olives. And his disciples say, um, which has the most beautiful view of the temple. In fact, if you've seen a picture of the skyline of Jerusalem right there with the Temple Mount, it's probably been from the vantage point of the Mount of Olives. And as he's walking to the Mount of Olives, the disciples say, man, isn't the temple beautiful? And Jesus says, I'm telling you, the day is coming when not one stone will be standing on another. And they get to the Mount of Olives and they say, Jesus, like, when's that going to happen? And he launches into chapter, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. These are such um, significant two chapters. It's got a name. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a discourse he has on the Mount of Olives. And it's been given that name historically because of what Jesus says. And he starts talking about the end. And he says, here's how you'll know it's the time. There will be uh, wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes and there will be famine. And then he starts quoting from Daniel. You'll see this, then the son of man will return. And then he, he, uh, he starts saying things like, but no one knows the day or the hour, not even, not even the son, only the father. And then he gives this series of parables that are all the rest of it is all about being ready for that moment. And he says, he starts with this one, probably the most famous of these parables. We talked about this on week one of our series. He says, he, he will come, the end will come like a thief in the night. It's like you have to be perpetually ready. If the thief gave you a heads up on when he was coming, you'd just be ready then. No, you have to stay perpetually ready. He tells another parable. He says, you've got to be like a servant that's ready for his master. Whenever the master uh, needs something, you're ready to do that. He tells another parable about 10 bridesmaids because in their their culture, they would wait for the groom to come with his entourage uh, to the house of the bride. And the whole bridal party would go back to the groom's house for the big celebration. He said there were 10 bridesmaids and they each had these lamps of oil and five of them made sure they had enough oil and the other five didn't. And when the groom came, there were five of them that were not ready and their lamps had gone out. You need to keep your lamps burning. Then he tells this parable and then he closes with a closing parable about the judgment. He says, it's going to be like this. Everyone will stand before the sun and then the sun will say, those of you who are, who are my followers, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And they'll say, when did we do that? When did we serve you like that? And he said, whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And, and one of these parables, the, the second to last And it's actually the one he takes the longest to tell is this one right here. So I want you to understand the context when he says it will be like he's talking about the end times. He's talking about when Jesus returns and he's teaching us something. This is important to Jesus. The end times, you need to know it is like this. And he says it like this. Let's let's go back to verse 14 again. Let's see the parable he tells. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey 
who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he had five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Okay, let's pause there. We've got masters and servants. I think it would be a little bit more intuitive for us to think about it in terms of a business owner bringing his managers together. Uh, maybe he uh, has a, a company that works in finance and he says, okay, I'm leaving for a while and I'm going to entrust a certain amount of money to each one of you. It says to one, he entrusts five talents, one, two talents, and one, one talent. And notice it says each according to his ability. So there's one who tried and true, had highest capacity, he gave five talents. To, to the next one, he gave two talents. That was according to his capacity. The last one, he gave one talent, according to his capacity. Now, let's look at this word talent for a second. Talent, we use the word talent to mean like your skills, your gifts. Um, that's not what this is talking about. This is an ancient um, unit of measuring money. This is talking about money. He's entrusting a certain amount of money to each one. How much money is one talent? One talent is a lot of money. So it would probably be, some scholars say, upwards of $600,000 per talent, maybe closer to $700,000. For our purposes, let's just round it up to a million. It might even be as much as that. This is a, a talent is a large sum of money. So he's got these managers. You can see the, the kind of the capacity of this business owner. He's got a lot, he's got a lot of money. He gives this first uh, person, he says, okay, I'm entrusting five talents, $5 million to you. You're watching over this $5 million of my money um, while I'm gone. I'm giving you $2 million and you $1 million. Well, what, what happens? The one with the $5 million, it says immediately he starts trading with it. And he, has, he takes that $5 million and he turns it into $10 million, 100% return, makes another $5 million. The guy with the two, the two talents, the $2 million, he, he also, he goes to work using the two talents. He turns the two talents into $4 million. He takes two, makes another two. He's got $4 million of the master's money. And then there's the guy with the one talent. He takes, goes into his tent, digs a hole, puts the talent, all the money, the $1 million there, covers it up with dirt. That's all he's going to do. The master returns. Now we're going to put ourselves in different people in this story. Let's start with this. You're the business owner. You're about to hear, you're about to settle these accounts. What do you think you'd feel with, with uh, servant number one? I like that guy. Servant number two, man, good for you. That's amazing. How about servant number three? Let's see what happens. We're going to pick it up in, in verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, 
You delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay, pause there with me. Guy number one says, Okay, uh, uh, master, you, you, uh, you entrusted me with $5 million. Since you've been gone, I've turned $5 million into $10 million. Here are all your 10 talents back. And what did the master say? He's pretty happy about that. He says, man, that's amazing. I knew I could entrust you with five talents. That's awesome. You just see the joy, man. Enter into the joy of your master. Man, that's, I, you're my guy. I knew you could do it. He says, good job with those five talents. And then the guy with the two talents, he's like excited too. Hey, well, I had two. I got you another two. Here's four. And he says the same thing. Man, well done, good and faithful servant. You just see this joy. Enter into the joy of, of your master. Man, good for you. I, I knew you had it in you, but, but man, that, that's great great. And then he says this to both of them. He says this, I entrusted you with little. Now I will trust you with a lot. Okay. Now we really see the capacity of this business owner. In his mind, $5 million is a little. He says, man, you thought that was a lot? Oh man, I have plans for you. He says, I've, I've got so much for you. Same thing to the guy with the, with the $2 million. He says, man, that was just a little compared to what I want to do, do for you. Enter into my joy. Man, I've got so much. You've been faithful with a little. Man, I'm, I've got so much more. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay. Now I want you to put yourself in the position of one talent guy. How's one talent guy feeling right now? Some sweat beads forming on his forehead. Maybe he's trying to like sneak out of the tent. You know, maybe he didn't, maybe he forgot about the million. Apparently he's really wealthy. So maybe he just overlooked the fact that he gave me a whole talent. Maybe he didn't think about that, you know, and he's maybe wringing his hands, you know, maybe his, his face is going pale. Okay, what happens to the one talent guy? Let's finish out the story. Pick it up with me in verse 24, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, answered him you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. End the parable. What does the, um, the one talent servant do? What does the 
What does the last servant do? Man, he, he does the thing that at some point, I think each one of us are guilty of at some point. I mean, he does the, the quintessential human move when we've, been, when we've messed up, but we don't have the courage and wisdom to own it. Like this is like foolishness 101. He's caught, and what does he do? Blame someone else. It's what Adam did. It's what Eve did. He puts it back on the master. He's ashamed. He's got the one talent. Well, it's, it's you. It's you, master. I was just afraid of you. I mean, you're a hard person to work for. You're ruthless. I mean, you take things that don't belong to you, but fine, I was, I was scared. It's not my fault. I was scared. So here, here's your talent. You can have what's yours back. And what does the master do? He just cuts right through that. He says, no, that's not what this is. Because if you were really scared, if that was true about me, then you simply would have taken the money and put it in the bank. You may not have had a 100% return like servant one and servant two, but you would have at least done something wise with what's mine. He says, no, that's not what this is. He says, let me tell you what this is. You were slothful. You were, you were lazy and wicked. I had entrusted what was mine to you and you did nothing with it. And he says, he's fired, send him out. He's no longer part of this household, he's out. Okay. We hear this, this parable and um, it, it's very vivid. Easy for us as moderns to understand what's happening here. And it makes us ask this question, okay, um, which servant do we wanna be? And how do we work this out in our lives? But before we talk about that, can I just remind you, this is not like, um, like one of those like motivational speaking type parables. This is not like you go to a corporate event and someone tells you a story to kind of inspire you to just like live a little better. Like it's, this is not that. This is from the son of God saying definitively, this is what the end will be like. That's the authority of this, of this text. This is what it is like. The, the end of all things, when Jesus returns, he's the master who's returning. He's the master who's returning. That means that we are the servants in the story. And that means the talents, the, the resources that he gave us to steward, we will give an account for. Those are things that are not ours. There are things, according to this text, that belongs to him. And so here's the, here's the question. This text really gives us two options. I mean, which, which of these servants do you and I want to be when he returns? Which of them? And the options are, Two of them were faithful with what they were, what they were given, and enter into the joy of what the Father has for them. And one was lazy and had not, had not stewarded well what God had entrusted to them, to him. Um, in other words, it's like this. Spoiler alert. Be ready. This is what the end's like. It's something you need to be ready for. Week one in the series, we said, spoiler alert, uh, Jesus returns. 
Part two, we said, spoiler alert, Jesus reigns. Part three, it's spoiler alert, we need to be ready. It's one of the most important things about the end times is we need to be ready. And he tells us here in this text, what does readiness look like? You say, you know, I I know it's important to be ready, but you know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, how do we know even that this is the end times? Like, how do we know that we're in those end times? Listen, I want to tell you definitively, authoritatively, we are 100% in the end times. Absolutely, unmistakably in the end times. Not the end season, not the end years, not the end weeks or months, the, the final hour. Why do I say that so definitively? Not because of what I see in the news, but what we're taught in the Bible. 1 John chapter 2 Remember, this is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. He, got, he was given that vision. Here is what he said in, in another letter, 1 John 2. Listen, children, it is the last hour. John said it. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John told his generation, we are in the last hour. And so faithful believers have continued to believe the same thing generation after generation after generation. And so we look at each other and say, It's still, we have to operate as if it's the last hour because Jesus will return and he'll come like a thief in the night. We want to be ready. We want to be the, the, we we want to, we know he comes like a thief in the night. We want to be the servant that's ready for the master. We want to be the, the bridesmaids that have kept the lamps burning. We want to, we want to be like the, the, the servant that has faithfully handled, handled the resources of the Lord because we know the master is returning so that we would give an account. It is is the last hour. The Bible is absolutely clear about that. We don't need the newspaper to tell us that. The Bible tells us that. It is the last hour. So it is absolutely essential that we are ready. What does readiness look like? You know, there are some believers who, very to their credit, are very faithfully study the scripture to find out if it's the final hours. But unfortunately, they, they believe that. But the way they prepare themselves is not exactly how this text is talking about. A lot of times there's this idea of preparation where it's an impulse to protect and preserve. It's an impulse to pull out of the world. It's, a, it's an impulse to hunker down and, and to just protect what is ours of the world. But that is not what this text is saying. It's not saying pull out of the world. Um, the, a, couple, um, a couple chapters later, Um, A a couple nights later, this probably took place maybe on Tuesday of Holy Week. On Thursday night of Holy Week, Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father sent me into the world, so I am sending you. If it's the final hour, we go into the world to bear fruit with greater fervor. We don't hold back, pull back, preserve. No, we say it's the final hour. Let's give all that we've got because we will give an account for bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. This is what it says. What does this text say about about preparing? How do we be ready? There are two things that are crystal clear in this text about being ready. If you want to be ready for the return of Jesus, what do you do? Two things. Here's the first one. Is like these servants, you understand that everything that you have in your life 
does not belong to you. It is not yours. You are stewarding it for the master. That's everything in your life. Your time. Your calling. Your dreams. Your body. Your finances. Your resources. All of it, you're merely stewarding something that belongs to Jesus. You say, man, I, I don't know. That sounds like a lot. Like uh, all of that, everything I have, there's not some of it that's mine that I share back with God. No, it all belongs to God. We're merely, it's, it's in this text, he, the, the master gave them and trusted them with his property. Everything you have is his property. This is what it says in Psalm 24, verse one. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's all his. But man, isn't it so tempting to think, well, there's some things that are mine. I mean, there's things that are mine because I worked hard for them. There are things that are mine because like, I, my, there's money that I've made. I mean, there's vacation time I've stored up. There's retirement that I, that I set aside. I mean, there, there's, there's posi a position that I worked hard to get. I mean, there's some things that are mine, right? Look at what the scripture says. It puts us in our place. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. It's, it's because of that he can say like what he says in the book of Haggai chapter two, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Everything that we have all belongs to God. But here's often the temptation, Christian, is we wait and give God the overflow, the margin, the extra. We say, God, I would love to give you time to in prayer and worship and Bible study and have a time that I set aside to experience the presence of the one who's the almighty God, the source of all joy and glory and beauty and love, the one who knows me and affirms me and accepts me. I'd love to spend time with you but I'm really, really busy right now. When time opens up, I will give you time from the overflow. We say, God, I, I love to do more for you. I know there's that hurting person in my life, but I'm really busy right now. When I get time for that, I'll do that. Lord, I'd love to be an active part of the body in relationship and serving in my church, but I, I've got a lot going on. So, I'll, But when I open up more space, I'll give that back to you. Lord, I'd love to give an offering financially back to you. I'd love to, to give back to you and be a part of, of financially funding your kingdom going forward, but things are tight. When I get a little extra, when I make a little more, I will give you of the overflow. And he said, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, it all belongs to the master. See, here, here's what often we say, yeah, but I've got things I'm pursuing. I've got things that I want to accomplish, things that I, I want to achieve, things that I want to buy, people, a, a person that I want to be. I want glory. I want beauty. There's things that I want. Man, there, there's protection that I need. There's security that I need. There's safety that I need. And Jesus exposes all of that in Matthew chapter six, and then he says to us, yes, but seek first the kingdom of God and all of those things 
will be added unto you. Consider the lilies of the field. Not one person has the splendor of these flowers in the field, and it's God who gives them that beauty. Think of how he provides for the birds of the air. He says, aren't you not more valuable than them? So just seek your father first, not from the extra, not from the margin. Give him all of your life first, and then everything will be added unto you. Listen, Christian, if we're going to be ready with the reality that Jesus is going to return, can we let this passage hit us with its full force? Listen, even the servant with the one talent was completely clear that the talent was the master's. Jesus didn't even add a servant that mistakenly thought the master's stuff was his own. Because that's embezzlement. Everything we have is the Lord's. We're stewarding what's the Lord's. Jesus is coming soon and we will stand before him, showing how we've stewarded everything he's given us. What kind of servant will he find us being? Here's the second thing that's unmistakably clear in the text. The servant with the five talents immediately went to work. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait to start to leverage everything you've got for the kingdom. Don't wait if he's calling you to share your faith. Don't wait. Don't wait till, till next month or next year. Don't wait till you, you get some other things right in your life. Don't wait till you have all the answers. Share your faith now. Church, we may not, we, the next time we meet together, it may be in heaven. Don't wait. Don't wait till tomorrow. Because he, we may hear the trumpets blast and the Son of Man on the clouds this afternoon. Don't wait to share your faith. Don't wait to reconcile that broken relationship. Don't wait to forgive. Don't wait to put aside that sin, that, that sin practice that's dragging you down into brokenness. Put it aside in repentance today. Now, don't wait to get active in serving as part of your church. Don't wait to reach out to that hurting person at work. Don't wait to, to open up your finances and find the freedom that he brings when you sow in the kingdom of God and he reaps back so you can sow more. Don't wait for those things because you know that Jesus is going to return and a, a faithful servant that's ready at any moment for Jesus to return is not going to wait. We're going to be busy today. Christian, can you do that? Can we not wait? Can we get to work immediately? What is it that he's calling to do? You say, man, I, the idea, the idea of, of Man, turning things over to him first and setting aside my goals and putting that aside. I mean, he's asking too much. It's too hard to serve a master like that. It's too hard to give up this sin practice. It's too hard to take that step and be bold in my faith. It's too hard to use my finances and be generous back to God when I've got my own goals for my finances. It's too hard to give up my time. It's so precious. I can never get that back. He asks too much. That's one talent servant thinking. And so he buried it as if he had the authority to do that. But what are we missing out on, Christian? 
if we hold back, he's just calling us to enter into the joy. He's calling us to enter into the joy of the master. Jesus taught this on probably Tuesday of Holy Week. Do you know what else he said on Thursday night? He looked at his disciples and he said, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. He says, you're like sons and daughters. That's who you are. Sons and daughters of the almighty God. God is saying, listen, I'm just calling you to, to turn it all over to me because I have a plan. I, I want to entrust you with so much. He's like, I'm calling you to even give up your own dreams for your life because what I've entrusted with you with now is so little. I have so much more I want to entrust you with. He's, del he's delighting over you. He's laughing over you. He's, he's cheering over you. He's got a smile over you. He's in joy taking you into his arms and saying, I'm so proud of you. You're, I, I want to walk with you as a, as a, as a faithful servant. I want to be able to say to you, well done done. I'm, I'm bringing you into so much more. Come on this adventure with me. See, that's the only way to follow Jesus. It says in the end, it says that the one servant the, with the one talent was put out of, of the family uh, of the household. And you say, well, wait a minute, if I'm burying the things and I'm, I'm not honoring the Lord with that, what does that mean? He, here's what we know about Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, you can never lose your salvation, but he's calling you to live out that reality. And here is a marker of someone living out that reality. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is all or nothing. He says, this is, what we, this is what beats in our heart as, as a church, as City Rev, is that following Jesus, being a disciple, a mathetes is the ancient Greek word. To be a mathetes is an all or nothing situation. Jesus said, before you choose to become my mathetes, before you take that step, he says, count the cost. He says, because I'm telling you to renounce everything and hand it over to me and just open-endedly follow me. That's what it means to be a mathetes. And that is the only way to find the joy and the freedom he's calling you into. Do it for freedom. Do it for joy. Do it for the adventure that he has a dream for your life beyond anything you can imagine. Because the hour is late and he is coming. He could come this afternoon. Don't wait. So Christian, let's hear the words, the words of our, of our Savior Jesus. What type of people will he find us being? Here's what my heart is. I, I don't, we don't, I know it's not just me, it's us. We don't want to be that type of people that it's like, hey, I'm really just living my life like the rest of the world. I'm just looking for a little Jesus sprinkled in to give me a little boost, a couple tips for living on how to live a little bit of a better life. That, that's not who we are as a church. We're called, it's all or nothing. Every part of my life. And you know the privilege of what he's calling us into? Do you know that the church, the, the, the mathetes of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, was prophesied about in the Old Testament? Here's how it's described. Joel said, it will be a people top to bottom like the world has never yet seen top to bottom, filled with the Holy Spirit of God himself. 
Ezekiel said, they will be like a valley filled of dry bones that have risen back to life and become an army as the wind of the Holy Spirit washes over them. They come back to life as an army to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It's like what Paul says. He says, if you're in Christ, you're like a brand new creation being recreated. Like, like this world has never seen, like belonging to the next creation. It's like what Hebrews says, you're going to live unlike the rest of this world lives, like an alien and a stranger, like your home is in heaven, not here on earth. It's like what Peter says, you're a royal priesthood. The angels are astonished to look and see what God has done through you. It's like what Jesus said. He says, you will be my witnesses, marturas, the word we get martyr from. You will be the ones that give up your entire life for the privilege of revealing to the world who Jesus is. And just watch as he does exceedingly more as you're entrusted with what he's given in your life now. Watch as he does exceedingly more than all you can ask or imagine. Can we celebrate that church? Isn't that what you want to see in your life? Isn't that what you want to see in your church and in your city? Jesus is coming and he's calling us to be ready. Everything you've got belongs to him. Let's steward it well. Let's seek first the kingdom of God because he's coming soon. Let's pray. My fellow Mathetes, my fellow believers, would you, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit brought to mind that you're holding back before God right now, would you hold it in, in, in front of you? Is it your dreams that you're holding on too tightly? And he's calling you to forsake your dreams, to pursue his even more phenomenal dream for you? Is it your finances you're clutching too tightly? And he's calling you on the adventure of expressing generously back to him and using your finances for his kingdom. Is it your time that he's calling you to take a bold step? Is it your witness? Is it your body? What part of you is he calling to you to surrender to him? Hold it before you. And hear the joy of the Father say, I'm just calling you into joy. I'm calling you into freedom. I'm calling you into surrender for something beyond what you can imagine. Please don't be just a hearer of the word. Be a doer, not tomorrow, today. Be a doer of the word and find, find the freedom and joy he's calling you into. Some of you need to take a step of faith and the step that you need to take is surrendering to Jesus and finding salvation. It's putting your faith in Jesus. This is not just about going to church more, or being more religious. It's about you accepting in faith that when Jesus came and died on the cross, he was paying for your sins and he rose again and that alone saves you. He's your savior. And some of you may say, look, I... I don't know that I'm ready. I've got so many questions. There's still parts of it that don't make sense to me. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Take a step of faith today. Take a step of faith today because Jesus is coming. Take that step today. Put your faith in Jesus today.
If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer just silently right there. Just silently say to Jesus, I sur- Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I make you my savior. I make you my king. I accept the work you did for me. And I give you my life. I will follow you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.